electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Last Call, one room, $500 billion in net worth. What comes after the Senate's historic AI summit? Well, some of these tech titans, Senator Ted Cruz was there, and he'll be here. Call it a shot in the arm. The biggest tech IPO in years debuting tomorrow. We've got breaking developments on the investor frenzy. What the FDA? The agency's shock finding around cold medicine stirring controversy. Sudden descent, a stormy outlook hitting some airline stocks out of the blue. We'll tell you why. And tapped out. How tipping fatigue, yeah, tipping fatigue may finally be reaching a breaking point in 501 and done. Why more workers are given a hard pass to hanging out ever with any colleagues. All that and much more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon at West. I'm Brian Sullivan. All that over the hour. But first up on last call, the strike that could rock America. Talks between the UAW and Detroit's big three coming down to the wire. We are now less than 48 hours away from a walkout by some or all of the union's nearly 150,000 workers. And tonight, the president of the UAW coming out again and saying what the car companies are offering simply is not enough. Let's get all the late-breaking details with Phil LeBeau, who is live tonight in Detroit. And my guess is, Phil, you might be there for a couple of days. I will be here for a couple of days, Brian. And I think we're probably going to see a strike at least at one or two of the uh, automakers, potentially all three, come midnight tomorrow night. Within the last couple of hours, we heard from UAW President Sean Fain, and he gave an update in terms of the offers from the big three to the UAW. And the most important part that we're focused on is the wage offers. Remember, what they're seeking, what the UAW is seeking, is 36 to 40 percent, somewhere in that range over four and a half years. Here's what they're being offered from Ford, GM, and Stellantis. There you see between 17 and a half and 20 percent. According to Sean Fain, that's not enough. So what happens if there's not a deal by midnight tomorrow night? Well, then we will start to see what Sean Fain is calling targeted strikes. And by targeted strikes, that means there will be strikes at select plants, select facilities, most likely a transmission plant. You can't do final assembly if you don't have transmissions. And according to Fain, the strikes will grow and will continue if these talks drag on for days or weeks. Here's Fain talking about the prospects of members walking off the line. And again, I want to be clear. Our goal is not to strike. Our goal is to reach a fair agreement. But if the companies continue to bargain in bad faith or continue to stall or continue to give us insulting offers, then our strike's going to continue to grow. As you take a look at shares of the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, one thing that Sean Fain did say tonight that is kind of interesting is that if the workers who are not on strike 
then on Friday they go in and there's not a contract, they will not be working under an extended contract. The previous contract just extended over a couple of days. They will be working under an expired contract. And that's important, Brian, because I've talked with a couple of people. What does that mean? A couple of people you know, who might give us some sense of what it means for the workers. Theoretically, it means that the automakers would be able to lock out workers, but then you start getting into the NLRB complaint about unfair labor practices, et cetera. Bottom line is this. Come midnight tomorrow night, if we don't have agreements with uh, any of the automakers or, or whatever automakers we don't have an agreement with, then you're going to see strikes by the UAW, targeted strikes. Yeah, and that's, I think that's, that's the key as I take it, Phil, and tell me if I'm wrong. It's these, this idea at first it's going to be selected strikes if we get them. To your point, let's call it a transmission plant in Indiana. Yep. Maybe 5,000 workers go out, and they are paid. Their salary is paid by the UAW's fund. But if everybody went out, that fund could drain pretty quickly. And I can't remember. I don't. I don't know. Have we ever had a time in, in 80 years where all the UAW went on strike at the same time? To, to my knowledge, no. No, I don't but, think so but it, might, it might have happened back in the 1930s, and I'm just not familiar with that. But I can tell you that in recent history, it has not happened. And let's be clear here, Brian. If there are 5,000 workers, let's say, in Kokomo, Indiana, and I don't think it's 5,000 who are down there, but however many are down in Kokomo, Indiana, at the Stellantis transmission plant, if they go on strike, they don't get a full salary from the UAW. They get $500 a week, which is a big difference from your regular paycheck. That also raises the question, what happens with other workers at Stellantis if there's a strike and the transmissions are not flowing, therefore final assembly stops? Well, theoretically, in the past, what you would have yeah. is the companies would say, you know what? You're laid off. We, you know, this strike action hmm. has caused us to lay you off. Then you get into labor uh, laws in each particular state where the facility is at, where the layoffs would take place. Wow. It's going to be a, a heck of a and a tense 48 hours. Phil in Detroit. And like you said, Phil, maybe there for some time. Phil, thank you. Yeah. You bet. All right. Now, ultimately, let's be honest. The UAW will get a new deal, likely with some sizable pay jumps. But just how much is the key issue? And, and by the way, who can blame the UAW for their tough stance? They're watching labor group after labor group after labor group ask for and largely get what they want. For labor and companies, really been the summer of strife. If you haven't paid attention, here's what's happened the last couple of months. Dock workers at West Coast Ports signed a new six-year deal, giving them a 32% increase over the contract. UPS and the Teamsters also agreed to a massive new deal. Drivers could earn $170,000 a year on pay and benefits. The end of the five-year deal by that time. The, by the way, United Airlines, American Airlines, they agreed to big new wage jumps for their pilots. It doesn't end there. The actors and screenwriters, they're still on strike, bringing Hollywood, Hollywood to a halt. And by the way, speaking of Michigan, just today, Blue Cross Blue Shield workers in Michigan who represent the UAW on the health insurance side, they walked out of their jobs. It's clear that unionized, organized labor is flexing its muscles right now. And whatever political side you may come down on it, you got to agree it's having an impact on companies and likely the economy. So let's talk about it with our A-list panel to kick it off. Former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development Julian Castro and former Labor Department Chief Economist Diana Furchcott-Roth. And it's a politically charged topic, Diana and Julian. I get that. We can dance around that if we want to. But there is no doubt, Diana, if you're a labor economist, as you are, tell us about the long-term impacts of all these deals that are being done. Well, it's the 1970s calling President Biden and saying they want their benefits back. 
We had terrible inflation numbers this morning. And plus, as Ford CEO says, these EVs are going to result in 40% fewer workers needed to make the EVs than the internal combustion engines. That's down 200,000 jobs. This is the first strike of the green agenda. It's President Biden who's sending these jobs to China. And quite rightly, the unions are wanting something in return. And that's one reason they're asking for the pay hike. They want 32 hours a week instead of 40, which is like buying five days worth of groceries and finding they only last for four days. And they also want cost of living adjustments, which is going to continue yeah. to increase inflation. You know, Julian, I can't you know, I can't blame them. Some people are out there. They'll be on Twitter or whatever saying, well, you know, doggone at the UAW here. Guess what? If you're a line worker busting your hump every day and housing costs have gone up 40 months in a row, food costs are up, education costs are up, health care costs are up. Can you blame organized labor for asking for more, especially when they're right about 30 and 40 percent jumps in profits and CEO pay? Yeah, Brian, I mean, what this comes down to is that these workers have worked very hard. And what they've seen over the last two decades is their average wage, when you adjust it for inflation, has gone down by about 20 percent. And so they end up having less buying power now than they did two decades ago. At the same time, they've watched company after company skyrocket their CEO pay. Uh, You know, these big three are a very good example of that. At Ford, I think it's something like 281 to 1, the CEO salary versus the median worker salary. At, at uh, Stellantis and at GM, it's over 300 to 1. In the 1970s, that was closer to 20 to 1. So we've seen CEOs and executives have their price pay skyrocket, yeah. but work if ask for a little bit more, they're told no. And that's why you see the frustration here among workers. I, and uh, I, and listen, that, and that's, I get that, Julian, but you know, you know as well as I do, that's an easy target because even if you divided that CEO pay among all the workers, you're talking about a couple hundred dollars, whatever, a year. That's an easy political target. I get it. Do you worry, though, about the upward inflationary spike and spiral from the dock workers, from the airline pilots? I mean, the, I know this about corporate America, Julian, and so do you. They're not going to eat those cost increases. They're going to pass it along to me, to Diana, and to you. Well, what I find interesting, though, is that uh, as corporations during these times have seen record profits, not only in the auto industry, but across many other industries, people don't complain. But when workers see their real wages go down and then start to ask for more, all of a sudden there's a problem here. This is a negotiation. My hope is that they're going to be able to compromise. They're going to find a way to increase wages and benefits so that they give workers a lot more than they're getting Mm -hmm. now and keep what they've done for CEOs. And they also recognize the potential pitfalls for the future. This is what happens in every single negotiation. And hopefully, now that they're coming down to crunch time, they're going to get down to business. And to your earlier point, Diana, listen, it happened today. These same workers and union members are watching billions of taxpayer subsidies go to nascent, untested industries. Just, I think it was yesterday or today, Georgia said it's going to do $2.5 billion in taxpayer subsidies for a Hyundai plant. Hyundai, one of the biggest and richest companies in the world. And yeah, the plant will, will, will make EV batteries and EV cars. It's going to employ 8,500 people. Do the math. That's 247000 per employee in a taxpayer subsidy. Taxpayers in Michigan 
subsidizing, in some cases, EV battery plants for Korean companies in Georgia. That, that would tick me off, too. These EVs are an ex existential threat to the jobs of the UAW, and not just the United Auto Workers, but the parts suppliers, the mechanics who fix our cars. Right now, EVs are 6% of new vehicle sales. President Biden wants them to be 60% by 2030. That means fewer jobs, and you can quite see why the United Auto Workers are up in yeah. arms over that. They're paying the producers to make these EVs. They're paying consumers to buy them with tax credits. People don't really want them. They want the pickup trucks that the UAW is making. And these other jobs are coming in right to work yeah. states where workers do not have to be a member of the union, like Georgia is a right to work state. Well, you know, we've got to leave it there. But Phil LeBeau referenced uh, transmissions. You know what an EV doesn't have? A transmission. There you go. Diana Furchcott Roth, right. Julian Castro. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's going to be a wild Thank 24 you. hours. All right. Up ahead, open arms for arm. Will the blockbuster IPO live up to all the hype? We've got the breaking developments. Plus, it is probably the most net worth inside one room in history. Tech Titans making a potential breakthrough on AI. Senator Ted Cruz, who's at the summit, will join us. Stick around. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories CNBC style you'll be talking about tomorrow. First up, Howard Schultz stepping down from Starbucks' board. Remember, he stepped down as CEO in March. That was the third time he stepped down as CEO. And he will now hold the title of Chairman Emeritus. So not gone completely, but almost. Starbucks, by the way, not moving much on the news. Next up, new details about a cyber attack on Caesars earlier this summer. According to the Wall Street Journal, hackers demanded $30 million, and Caesars did agree to pay about half that amount. This all comes after the cyber attack on MGM Resorts earlier this week. Caesars and MGM both closed in the red, but investors and customers should be asking, what's going on here? And finally, it is the blockbuster IPO moment of the year so far. Arm, pricing at $51 a share, values the company at more than $54 billion. They will be listed on the NASDAQ tomorrow under the ticker ARM. So you may be asking yourself, what is ARM? And why does everybody seem to want a piece of them? Well, ARM Holdings was founded in 1990, designs the blueprints for many semiconductors, the ones that power, by the way, most of our smartphones. ARM then licenses those designs to major semiconductor manufacturers. Among ARM's biggest customers, yeah, Qualcomm, Apple, Amazon, to name a few. 
Arm estimates more than 250 billion chips using its technology been sold since its founding 23 years ago. Now that you know more about Arm than you ever wanted to know, let's learn more about the IPO with Leslie Picker. There will be a quiz at the end of this, Leslie. What does demand for Arm shares look like? <laughs> I, I'm ready. I'm sharpening my pencil for the mm. quiz, Brian. Uh, at this point, I feel like I've almost memorized the, the F1, but uh, we'll see. Um, demand for this deal, it is oversubscribed. It has been oversubscribed for the better part of a week now. What that means is there are more indications of interest. These are non-binding indications of interest than there is float available. Because you have significant cornerstone investors in this deal. Many of those customers that you just named have agreed or have indicated that they're interested in purchasing up to 750 million, or I'm sorry, $735 million worth of this offering. That leaves about $4 billion for hedge funds, institutional investors, and retail investors to buy into this deal. So when you hear something like 10 times oversubscribed, mm. that means there's 10 times more indications of interest for this deal than there is stock available. Now, the question is, and the question the whole time has been, at what price is this demand? And it was clear, you know, in conversations yesterday and through the better part of today that it was looking like the high end of the range or above the range, but pricing at the high end of the range is a conservative bet, especially since this is the first big deal we've seen in years, and you really want to ensure that they have a decent debut uh, because it, it would bode well for the other IPOs in the pipeline. I'm going to make a wild stab. I did not read your notes, Leslie, but I'm going to make a wild guess that AI, artificial intelligence, is somehow playing some kind of narrative role <laughs> in this IPO. True or false? Yeah, true. True. It definitely is. Um, if you look at the overall fundamentals, this valuation is double what its peers are currently trading at. If you look at um, a trailing earnings basis, it's about a, over a hundred times. That's more akin to kind of where NVIDIA is trading as opposed to uh, some of the, the more established semiconductor players in the market currently. Uh, but AI, uh, they absolutely mention AI in their prospectus as a, an end market that they're developing. Um, obviously, NVIDIA is one of those customers that's purchasing shares of the IPO. So that's something they're certainly exposed to. Now, they haven't necessarily turned AI into the same kind of revenue and and demonstrable um, financials that other companies have at this stage. But again, IPOs Mm -hmm. are often about buying into the prospect for something bigger down the road, getting in early so that you can be there for that future. So yeah. that is kind of the bull case that a lot of investors see in this company, despite all of those risks that I laid out. And maybe the bankers would like to price it in a way where it kind of is guaranteed to go up because then people like us talk about it. Hey, you never know, Leslie Picker. Thank you. <laughs> and you don't have a <laughs> pencil. You. Still ahead. Tech's most powerful names all in one room. What comes next after today's historic AI summit on Capitol Hill? Senator Ted Cruz, who was there, will be here next. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13.
All right, welcome back. It certainly was a busy day on Capitol Hills. The biggest leaders in tech met with leading senators for a closed-door summit on artificial intelligence. CBC's Eamon Javers joins us now with much more. You were there all day, Eamon. Yeah, that's right, all day, Brian. We're learning more tonight, though, about what went on behind closed doors and off camera at the Senate's AI Summit today. Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Sundar Pichai, and more of the biggest names in technology met with a select group of senators led by Majority Leader Chuck Schumer today to get their arms around the promise and the peril of artificial intelligence. In the historic Kennedy caucus room, just steps from where I'm standing right now, scene of iconic hearings of the past, the senators asked the CEOs for insight into how they should regulate this explosive growth new technology, tech that has the potential to reshape almost every industry in the global economy. Now, I caught up with Tesla CEO Elon Musk as he was leaving, and he told me just how important he thought this session was. I think it was, it was, it was very um, civilized discussion, actually, among um, some of the smartest people in the world. So uh, I thought it was, uh, Senator Schumer did, did a great uh, service to humanity here. I think we'll, um, I think something good will come of this. this I think this, this meeting may go on history as being very important for the future of civilization. And Musk told me he thinks the Senate may need to create a federal department of AI. I think the probability of there being some sort of AI regulatory agency that stands on its own, similar to the FAA or FCC, is likely at some point. You think so? I think so. Um, now, the, the, the reason that I've been such an advocate for uh, AI safety in advance of sort of anything terrible happening is that I think the consequences of AI going wrong are, are severe. Um, so we have to be proactive rather than reactive. Now, nothing was decided here today, Brian, but you rarely see an assemblage of such raw brain power, political clout and net worth all in one place at one time. So we're told the Senate may be working on AI legislation in the year to come. And so this was just a first step in putting all that together. So we'll see if this meeting becomes as historic as Musk at least suggests that it was. Back over to you. Great stuff. Eamon Jabbers, thank you. So for more on today's AI summit, let's bring in somebody who, like Hamilton, was in the room where it happened. Republican Senator Ted Cruz of Texas <laughs> joining us now. You like that, I think. Senator, also, by the way, the ranking member of the Commerce Committee. So, Senator Cruz, really appreciate you taking some time for CNBC and Last Call. Okay, back in June, and I'm going to be a little bit, uh, you know, off the cuff here. Back in June, you said that most of Congress, quote, doesn't know what the hell it's doing. Sorry for the words, yours, not mine. After today, do you feel that they still don't know what they're doing or have we learned? Uh, look, of, of course, Congress doesn't know what it's doing when, with regard to AI. I mean, th th this is a body where, you know, it seems like the median age is about 106. This is not a tech-savvy body. This is a body where one of my colleagues a few years ago referred to the Internet as a system of tubes. Um, and, and, and I got to say, the idea that you have politicians in Congress who are eagerly, eagerly barreling down the road to having the federal government regulate AI, I, I, I think that makes no sense at all. If, if you look at the potential for AI, AI is already transforming our economy. It's transforming how we live day-to-day -day life. And, and the upward potential in terms of productivity, in terms of new jobs, 
is massive. And, and the one thing that could really screw it up is the federal government coming in in a heavy-handed way. You, you've got Democrats who are proposing having the federal government have prior approval and issue licenses before new innovations in AI. I think that doesn't make any sense. And, and my counsel to my colleagues is tap the brakes, slow down, let's examine it. Are there risks? Absolutely yes. But don't step in with a heavy-handed regulatory approach that would stifle innovation and hurt American competitiveness. I, I know you're concerned not just about Congress as well. And by the way, the tube comment, not, not technically incorrect. There are some fiber optic cables, <laughs> Senator, as you know. Okay, but going into, you sent a letter on Monday to the FTC chair, Lena Khan, yeah. in which you basically, you said the FTC really does not have statutory authority to regulate anything like AI, but you were looking for more clarity on sort of their intentions. What is your concern about that? Why send that letter Monday? Well, listen, the FTC under the Biden administration has been really abusive. And, and to be clear, uh, I, I spent two years at the FTC under George W. Bush as the head of policy there. And, and it's an agency that has a long history of bipartisan cooperation. It's designed to be a bipartisan commission with, with commissioners, both Republican and Democrat. Under Joe Biden, there are only Democrat commissioners, and it really has abused its authority. It has become an aggressive regulatory agency that, that, that's, that's seeking to put the federal government, uh, the tentacles of the federal government into all sorts of different aspects of the private sector that, that, that is beyond the statutory ambit of the FTC. When it comes to AI, the FTC is trying to go after technology companies and, and enter into consent decrees that would empower the FTC to micromanage what is happening with AI. And, and look, I'll draw an analogy. If you go back to the early days of the Internet, the United States and Europe adopted fundamentally different regulatory approaches. The United States very, very wisely decided to keep a hands-off approach to the growth of the Internet. Europe, on the other hand, decided to do an aggressive regulatory approach to require prior government approval for innovation. And there's a reason why you don't see any major tech companies coming out of Europe. That, that, that if you want to have the prior approval model, we can be certain you won't see innovation. When you think of government bureaucracies, who wants to see technology run like the DMV, a, a, a government office? We want innovation to be here, especially given that this is a global competition for yeah. AI, and, and we're competing with China, we're competing with the entire world, and I think it's critically important for America's competitiveness that the United States continue to lead. That will happen as long as government doesn't screw but, it up. But, but can, can we concede it all? Can you concede it all, Senator Cruz, that, that there are times when, A, companies have to be reined in, they will do things like Microsoft sure, did 20 years course. ago with the antitrust lawsuits, whatever, and, and, and maybe that, that AI is not, we're not arguing about a, a, an internet browser choice. We're talking about machines that can think, often think and do for themselves that maybe this is a, a different level of regulatory need given some of the, and people have expressed concern for humanity because of AI. Yeah. Uh, so, so I will say eight years ago in 2015, I chaired the very first congressional hearing ever on AI. 
Uh, and at the time, one of the questions I asked one of the witnesses in reference to what you just said then, is I said, do any of you know the date Skynet will go active? Which, <laughs> of, of course, is the bad guy in Terminator, and I really hope we're not going to see Skynet. I don't want uh, Terminator, although I, I, was, I was amused to see, see speculations that Arnold Schwarzenegger might run for Senate in California, and it'd be really cool to serve in the Senate with the Terminator. But, look, jesting aside, are there real threats? Yes. Are there threats of fraud? Are there threats of cyber terrorism? Are there threats of, of criminality? Are there military threats? Yes, yes, and yes. Do we need to be serious in dealing with them? Of course. Mm -hmm. But it is the wrong approach to put the federal government in charge of a prior approval system uh, where you end up stifling innovation. The world's not going to stop innovating just because the federal government decides we don't want innovation in America. And so the choice is, do we want AI worldwide to be driven by communist China or do we want it to be American companies yeah. driving it? And I think the latter is much better. Will there be time at some point in the future yeah. for more significant regulatory approaches? Almost surely, but it should be it should come from a place of knowledge, not a, a bunch of politicians eager for headlines, yeah. putting rules in place they don't understand. Yeah, a couple more questions for you on different topics, Senator, while we yeah. have you. Number one, New York Times today. New York Times noting that pandemic fraud may have robbed unemployment insurance of 135 billion. PPP fraud we know yeah. is rampant. The inspector general, the DOJ, told Lester Holt of NBC last year that this will be, when all said and done, the greatest fraud in a generation. How did this happen? What can we do to get some, yeah. if not more, of this money back? Or is it, is it gone, a lot of it overseas? Well, listen, the, the, the fraud and, and the New York Times report estimates it at 15%. It wouldn't surprise me if you're looking at even more extensive fraud than that. Uh, it was a problem many of us saw on the front end. Many of us were concerned on the front end. And there should have been more guardrails put in when you have the federal government shoveling out trillions of dollars. That, that there should have been more guardrails. You know, I stood on the Senate floor and, and debated Dick Durbin, the Democrat from Illinois, uh, in support of an, of, of an amendment that I offered along with another Republican senator that, that would have capped so the federal government right at the beginning of the pandemic plussed up unemployment compensation and plussed it up a lot. Uh, and, and we introduced an amendment that would have capped that increase so that no individual on unemployment would receive more on unemployment than they did on their job. You could receive exactly yeah. your salary, but you couldn't get much more. And we had a debate on the Senate floor, and it ended up being a straight party line vote. Every Democrat voted no, every Republican voted yes. And so it didn't prevail. And I got to say, it was striking. So Dick Durbin stood up and said, you know, the, the problem, you see, Cruz is saying that everyone on unemployment, they're just bums. And, and, and they just, just want to be lazy and sit on the couch. And, and, and I responded in that debate. I said, no, no, I'm saying something very different, which is that I think people respond according to incentives. People are rational. And the analogy I used, I said, if you're a yeah. single mom, and, and you're working two, three jobs, you love your kids. And if the government pays you two, three times as much to stay home as to go to work, you love your kids yeah. and so you're gonna take that. But that's not good for you, it's not good for the country. And, and yeah. we Can could I... have prevented more of this on the front end, we didn't. 
and now there needs to be a far more aggressive effort to investigate the fraud and to go after and recapture as much of it as yeah. possible. And I know it was a chaotic time, and they have gone after and, re and recovered some, but just the numbers get worse and worse every time yeah. we hear about it. Qu very quickly on this, uh, as, as a Texan, by the way, the IEA, International Energy Agency, yesterday yeah. saying that oil and natural gas and coal demand should peak in just six and a half years before 2030. That's their estimates, yeah. not it. We were at 13 million barrels a day equivalent producing uh, back in November 2019. We've ticked up, but we're still below that. And rig counts, meaning future drilling, it's going yeah. down. Yeah. Oil's back yeah. to almost 90. Gas is at five and six bucks a gallon in parts of the West Coast. Is there anything you can offer the American public to bring down energy costs, which are, as we learned in the inflation data today, Senator, uh, the, the biggest part of inflation, energy is the economy. Yes. Uh, look, n no doubt gasoline prices, the, the, the most forward-facing thing consumers face, are up 43% since Joe Biden became president. And, and Brian, that's not an accident. That, that is deliberate. That is the intended effect of the policies this administration's put in place. Joe Biden campaigned. On the campaign trail, he said he would shut down oil and gas exploration on federal lands, both onshore and offshore. And, and in the two and a half years of this administration, they have waged a war on U.S. oil and gas production, including including taking ANWR, shutting down production on ANWR, including well, halting for, for new leases in the Conoco Gulf of Mexico. They did approve the ConocoPhillips Willow Project up in the Arctic National Reserve in Alaska. That angered a lot of people, but they approved Well, they it. did, but, but, the, but they just in the last few days pulled back a lot of, a lot of exploration in Alaska. It has been a consistent regulatory assault. We've seen over 20 different mm -hmm. actions from this administration, including on the financing side, putting in place banking regulators that are trying to cut down loans for oil and gas exploration, putting in place SEC commissioners that are trying to cut off equity for oil and gas exploration. Now, yeah. if you can't get debt and you can't get equity, there's no capital. And, and this is, I, I think, incredibly mm -hmm. short-sighted. The United States is the world's superpower when it comes to oil and gas exploration, yeah. and yet the Biden administration embraces the Green New Deal, and they want energy prices to be higher well, because they don't like that so many Americans want to drive a pickup truck or a minivan, and they want to force you to sell your truck and, and buy a, 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 a little electric vehicle, and, and, Which, and I think that's really cynical. Well, well, I, we could, we'll get you back on to discuss that. I would argue that a little electric yeah. vehicle may be more expensive than the trucks, based on some of the prices I have seen. Yeah. Senator Ted Cruz, thank you very much for joining CBC and Last Call. We'll get you back on soon to talk more about that. Thank you. All right. Appreciate it. All right, thank, thank you. you. Still ahead, fasten your seatbelt. Speaking of oil, all is not well with some big airlines. Their warnings ahead. All right, welcome back. Let's get to your last call watch list. And it's airlines grabbing our attention tonight because both Spirit and American Airlines cut their outlooks today, saying jet fuel and pilot pay raises are going to cut into profits. Some are discounting on Spirit also playing a role. Both stocks landed hard today. In fact, the entire sector down. Wasn't just the airlines getting grounded a bit. Netflix fell 5%. The CFO admitting its new ad-supported tier is not driving revenue growth as much as hoped. Investors were hoping that Netflix's password crackdown would drive new customers to more expensive tiers, you know, to avoid ads. But guess what? Most are still opting for the cheaper one with 
the ads. All right, time now for our Quicker Than the Ticker, all the best of the rest of your headlines. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock. Danilo Cavalcante, the convicted killer who escaped from a Pennsylvania prison almost two weeks ago, was captured today and transferred back to jail. Cavalcante was found using heat-seeking technology. A police dog ultimately subdued him. Tipping at full-service restaurants on the decline, down to 19.4% on average. That according to online restaurant platform Toast. That is the lowest level since the beginning of the pandemic. Tip fatigue getting the blame. A luxury cruise ship has been stuck in Greenland since Monday. The Ocean Explorer, carrying 206 passengers, ran aground touring a remote national park. Everybody is safe, but a rescue vessel still days away. Killer Queen, a Sotheby's auction of Freddie Mercury's belongings fetched more than $50 million. The auction house says it is the highest ever total for any celebrity sale. And speaking of, consider yourself a member of the Beehive or a Swifty. Well, USA Today wants to hire you. They've listed two positions, a Taylor Swift reporter and a Beyonce reporter. The pay up to 50 bucks an hour. There you go. There's a gig for you and a good gig. Good music. All right, coming up. They just figured this out now. The FDA finding a decongestant used for generations doesn't actually work. How could this happen? Dr. Zeke Emanuel joins us next. Thirty-three years ago tonight in New York City is a show that follows two separate yet equally important groups of the criminal justice system. This is their story. All right, that wasn't very good. But let's go back in time to September 13th, 1990. Law and Order premiered on NBC. Look at that. The iconic characters became household names. Lenny Briscoe, anyone? In 1997, Law and Order won an Emmy for Best Drama Series and became a pillar of TV history, it spawned a cottage industry of spinoffs, endless cable TV reruns, and random but interesting, the original on order did get canceled, but returned last year after a 10-year hiatus. Law and order, now at 488 episodes and counting. All right, in the meantime, let's follow up on a story that broke yesterday that no doubt has a lot of you scratching your heads rather confused. In a 16-0 vote, a panel of FDA advisors declared that a common decongestant found in cold and allergy drugs does not actually work very well when taken as a pill, if it works at all. It's because the FDA apparently only recently tested it, or at least retested it, and found that very little of the drug actually gets to the nose to fight your congestion. In other words, it's apparently almost worthless. The FDA will now review the panel's findings and have to decide whether or not to pull the drug or drugs from the market. Now, it's important to note that this ingredient, phenylephrine, which is a primary ingredient in Sudafed, NyQuil, Benadryl, and more, has been on the market for decades. Now, 17 years ago, the FDA made a similar but stronger drug, pseudoephrine, available only with a prescription because it can be used in things like making meth. But no doubt many of you are wondering, how has a drug found in some of the most common over-the-counter medications in America, ones you probably have in your medicine cabinet, can suddenly be found ineffective. Joining us now with more insight is University of Pennsylvania Vice Provost of Global Initiatives, Dr. Zeke Emanuel, also part of the Biden-Harris Transition COVID Advisory Board, so you're perfect for this. So, Dr. Emanuel, how did this happen? Well, uh, phenylephrine was sort of grandfathered in in the 70s, 
It had been used, it was widely deemed safe and effective. And because it's used and permitted to be used, uh, no one's spending the money to do the studies to show it's effective. In 2007, some researchers at the University of Florida uh, appealed to the FDA and said, you know, this thing is, this drug is not effective. At that time, the data were not conclusive one way or another. And because it had been proven safe, or not been proven, because it had been deemed safe and effective and wasn't causing harm, they said, well, in the absence of data, it's grandfathered in. Um, they re sort of appealed to the FDA in 2015 and then in 2022. By that time, we had accumulated data. There have been four studies that it wasn't very uh, effective. It wasn't mm -hmm. any better than placebo uh, in uh, relieving uh, nose congestion. And that there was a good plausible explanation because when you took it by mouth, um, it actually wasn't available in the blood to affect the nose. Um, it had became it was neutralized. Um, but how, was, Dr. Emanuel, though, should we should we have more confidence in the FDA because they they figured this out, or less confidence because we've gone decades thinking this worked? Well, I think first of all. Um, we should commend the FDA for actually pulling or not. They haven't pulled it yet, but they will probably pull it uh, because it's not effective um, and doesn't work and people shouldn't waste billions of dollars on it. Um, but it has taken too long. So it's not a matter of do you trust the FDA? It's uh, why should we wait so long for this action to happen? And I think they have to speed this kind of activity up when you know, a mistake is made and new evidence changes changes our view of, of the effectiveness of a drug. The FDA is right to re-examine it and uh, stop uh, permitting it to be marketed to people if it doesn't work. I think that is a sign of confidence, a sign of, you know, we made an error in the past. We didn't have the data and now we're uh, withdrawing it. But I think it should have been done more expeditiously. And that's, I think, the yeah. key point to work faster uh, at this. We got, you know, all these, got all these billion dollar, already billion dollar weight loss drugs, weight control drugs, whatever you want to call them, Dr. Emanuel. A lot of people resting a lot of hope on this. Do you worry oh, well, this, this kind of thing could happen with those? No, that's a very different situation. They have been proven in randomized controlled trials. And there you have a very objective measure on weight control. Do people lose weight? And the data are that they lose weight. Not only they lose weight, they seem to actually uh, have improved uh, heart uh, health, that they have less uh, heart attacks, less strokes. And that's actually, those are hard mm -hmm. endpoints and very clear. I would not lose confidence, are these drugs safe? The issue is that a lot of people just don't stay on the drugs. And I think that's gonna turn out to be a yeah. problem. You're gonna yeah. have a lot of rebound when people say, I, you know, I'm not losing any more weight. And I these minor side effects are just becoming intolerable, um, but then their weight will bounce yeah. back. We're, you know, for the fortunate news, I guess, is that there's a lot of research in these kinds of drugs, and there are 70 different drugs under study, and we'll probably get better ones as time goes on. Dr. Zeke Emanuel, real great to have your insight on this uh, really probably bigger than it seems type story. Dr. Emanuel, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, up yeah. next, we've got, uh, thank you, by the way, got some breaking developments from Ford. Philippe getting some intel on what Ford may do. Literally, he just got it, and he'll be rejoining us right after this. Well, I got some breaking developments now out of Ford ahead of tomorrow's strike deadline with the UAW. Phil LeBeau joining us now on the phone. Phil, what do you have? 
Brian Ford responding to UAW President Sean Fain's Facebook Live uh, presentation tonight where he basically said none of the offers uh, are good enough, that none of the offers that have been put on the table uh, by the automakers, including Ford offering 20% essentially uh, for a wage hike over four and a half years, that was too much for Ford. They uh, issued a very strongly worded uh, release uh, in the words of CEO Jim Farley, saying that they have made four proposals since August 29th to the UAW and have yet to receive a legitimate counteroffer. They also say in their release that Jim Farley and the chairman of the company, Bill Ford, sat down with negotiators yesterday. They went to the meeting, and Sean Fain wasn't even there. They were a little flabbergasted, but they went forward and and made the offer, what they believe is a very generous offer, not only in terms of wages, but in terms of other changes to the contract uh, for the UAW workers. I have to stress this, Brian. I have been covering this company for more than 24 years. Rarely have I seen the level of frustration that is coming out in this release and in the people I've talked with at Ford in the last half hour. They are, they are flabbergasted at the way the UAW has been conducting these negotiations publicly, and they finally said today, enough is enough. We've made four offers, and there has yet to be a legitimate counteroffer. Yeah, you know the company as well or good as anybody. So effectively, go back in the timeline, Phil, if people are just joining us. You, you're on at the top of the show. Uh, the UAW made an offer. Ford has made a counteroffer, and Ford is saying they are not getting a counter to their counter from the UAW? Ford is saying they have made four contract four. offers since August 29th, and in their words, they have yet to receive a legitimate counteroffer. Legitimate counteroffer. Now, we know that Sean Fain and the UAW have said, hey, we want 40%. We think that that's the, the, the starting point here. Um, but in the words of Ford, these are negotiations that are being conducted essentially in public. They didn't have him come out and say that, but they said, look, this is, if you want to talk, let's sit down and talk. Let's not do the PR stunts, uh, which is what they believe the, these Facebook uh, presentations are from the UAW. So it's possible they got an offer quickly, but they just don't view it as, quote, legitimate. Uh, no, they do not believe that, that the UAW has really considered their offers. And, and if so... They, they said they didn't hear back on their le- most recent offer that, from, that Sean Fain had received it or had re- you know, reviewed it until Facebook tonight. Clearly, there is, there is a disconnect between the bargaining committees yeah. uh, at the UAW and Ford, and Ford's uh, executives, are, they're fed up. And there's two other companies they still got to deal with as well. Phil Lebeau, breaking some news. Ten seconds before the end of the show, Phil. We appreciate it. Wow, a lot going on. It's going to be a wild 48 hours. We'll see you tomorrow night. Have a great night. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.